You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning. If you guys would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to continue in our series there this morning. As we work through our series in Exodus titled Grace Upon Grace. And we've titled it that because continually throughout the message of our Bible, which is 66 books, it is a message and a story collectively as a whole of grace. It is God's unmerited love and favor toward humanity, not based upon anything they do or don't do, but based upon his own goodness and his own decision and choice to save and intervene broken and fallen people. And so Exodus is just a continuation of that that we see in Genesis. And so we're going to pick up this morning in Exodus Chapter 17, I'm hoping my voice will hold out this morning. One of my hobbies is doing jujitsu, but also coaching mixed martial arts. And I had two fighters compete last night and was yelling for quite some time. And so my voice is barely hanging in there. So you guys can pray for that with me as we dive in this morning. But our main point that I want you guys to walk away with remembering this morning is this is we are in a battle. So simply put, we can say, men and women, we are in a battle. People, we are in a battle. Christian brothers and sisters, we're in a battle. Everyone in this room, we are in a battle. And and I'm going to say this up front. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about, if you're here, you're visiting, you're a non-Christian, is just going to sound weird. Because when we talk about stuff like a serpent in a garden or Satan or an enemy and stuff like that, you go, man, that sounds bizarre. But, But let me challenge you with this. And it doesn't even come from me. It comes from a brilliant philosopher named Gregory Kokel, he says this, everyone intrinsically knows that there's darkness in the world, that there's an enemy, and that something out there exists. And he uses this as his example, why? 
You don't teach your kids about a boogeyman, about the monster in the closet, about something underneath their bed. And I mean, maybe you do as a parent, as some sort of ploy for getting your child to stay in their bed or to behave or something like that. But generally, good parents, <laughs> good parents, don't do stuff like that. But why do our kids, because I, I never did that. I was like, hey, <clears throat> get up in your room. And they're like, I don't want to go on in, in the room. I'm like, because you know, right, the, there's a monster in there. Like, I, I, I never said that. But from a young age, our, our kids said, hey, I don't want to go in there. Why? Because I'm afraid of the dark. Because I think there's a boogeyman in there. Because there's something in there. Intrinsically, we know, even from our youngest of age, that there's something dark inside of the world. And so we're born with that. We know that, that we live inside of a fallen world. And so it's even hard, hard to argue with because, again, we're not training and teaching our kids something like that. So as we look at that today, I would just appeal to that. How do we explain stuff like that? And I believe we have God's word to navigate that, to see that there is a real enemy, that there is real darkness. But we're not in this dualistic fight between good and evil. In fact, what Christians believe is that we have a king who's triumphed and the battle's been won. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the story of redemption, the story of salvation. That, Father, yes, there is darkness in this world, but you've sent your Son to overcome the darkness. And Christ, you came as a light that triumphed over the darkness. Our greatest enemy, Father, is not even something out in the world. It's the sin that prevails inside of our hearts that has separated us from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you stepped in to do something about that. Father, let me preach your word faithfully this morning. Let it be clear. Let it be drenched in the gospel. Let it be empowered by your spirit. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you've spoken. Thank you that your word is, is a sword. Thank you that we're not left trying to come up with what is true, what is objective, and what is not. Father, we know that because you are the source of all goodness. All logic comes from you. Objective truth comes from you. And Father, we can recognize what these things are because you've given them to us in your revealed word. Thank you. Father, encourage us this morning, challenge us this morning, exhort us this morning, but let us remember we're in a battle, but we're in a battle with a king who has won the ultimate war. Let us rejoice in that, but also let us carry a sense of weight in our days to recognize that we are in a battle and that there is an enemy that is trying to deceive people, that is trying to harm your bride, the church that is trying to turn people away from the truth of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a recap of where we're at, in the story of the Exodus, even if you're fairly unfamiliar with the Bible, most people are pretty familiar with the story of the Exodus. Where we're at at this point in the story in chapter 17 is that God has delivered his people. After 400 years of oppression and slavery, God intervenes, and he steps in and he delivers his people. So he brings them underneath the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians out of that. And he does this solely based upon his own goodness and his own power. And once they're delivered out from the oppression of the Egyptians, they're taken into the wilderness. And then instantly, they're thrown into a difficult situation. They have a sea and an enemy pursuing them. God delivers them by parting the sea and takes them through that. But then on the other side of the sea, we're introduced to more problems. They risk starving. They risk dying of thirst. And what they're also, and what we're also seeing, is that they are not united. So they're being divisive, 
They're being grumpy. They're hangry. We have all this stuff that we see as we look at the Israelites that we can also see if, if, if we look inside of us and we make an honest assessment. So that's where we're at today. God has delivered them, and he didn't deliver them by saying, be good people, and if you're really good, I will take you out of slavery and oppression and bring you to the promised land. God said, I will deliver you. I will save you. I will do it according to my own will. And then out of the salvation I provide, now we obey. So that's where we're at. And I say that to say this, that after God delivers them and after God saves them, they might be prone to think, hey, God saved us because we're pretty good people. And God should give us a smooth life because we're pretty good people. And in fact, they might be really distraught. They might be really frustrated, really angry with God if their expectation is that God would deliver them, God would save them, and give them an easy life because they're pretty good people. And so here's what I want us to look at today. Here, here's, here's our battle plan, so to speak. If we are in a battle, we need to know God and know his promises. That's number one. Number two, we need to know our enemy and know our enemy's schemes. And number three, we need to know our banner. I'll explain that as we go on. And then number four, we need to know where our battle is now. Let me run through those again real quick. We are in a battle, so we need to know God and his promises. We need to know our enemy and his schemes. We need to know our banner, and we need to know where our battle is now. Let's read Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took his stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's important that we know God and know God's promises. Because again, this is God's people. This is the very people that God has redeemed, that God has saved. And now they are in another position to where they have an enemy that's trying to kill and destroy them. The reason why we need to know God and know God's promises is because if we don't, then we're going to expect something from God that God never promised in the first place. A lot of times, our frustration comes from this, that we believe at our core that we're pretty good people and that God should be doing something to honor our goodness. So that when trials come in life, and let's face it, if we look at this story and look at what the Israelites have gone through, even since God has delivered them and brought them through the sea, They've risked famine, like I said, dying of thirst. They got now a, an army attacking them. Is It looks like this. It looks like wave after wave, punch after punch. And it just seems like the attacks keep coming. They could get really frustrated and say, what's going on here? And they have. They've grumbled against God. Why? Because we have this tendency to believe something contrary to what the Bible actually teaches, okay? And it's this that we are not at our core primarily good. We are at our core primarily bad. 
and no one wants to hear that. But if we actually started with where the Bible starts and, and talk about that accurately in regard to human heart, then life would look different. Because if you ask someone, hey, should, should you go to heaven? Most people will say, well, yeah. And if you ask why, you'll press them and they'll respond like this, because I'm a good person. Great. How do you know you're a good person? Most of the time, they're basing the goodness on comparing themselves to someone to their left and to their right. And that's how we determine our goodness. I'm a pretty good person because I'm not as bad as this person, um, but I'm, I'm fairly average because I'm also not as awesome as this person. God's standard for goodness is here. And if you hold it up, it's, it's essentially like a mirror. And what we see is a reflection of God's perfect moral character. So if the standard becomes God and God's goodness and God's law that he's commanded for us to live, then anyone looks at that and goes, I can't do it. I haven't done it. According to God's standard, I'm not good. I mean, just a simple test of a few Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever stolen? Yeah. Have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? Yeah. Just three out of three so far. And, and we can keep going. Have I ever coveted something that someone else has? Yes. Have I ever worshipped something above God? Yes. So over and over again, what we're able to start seeing is we're actually not as good as we think we are. That is a human perspective that has been spoken into your life that we believe, but it's not accurate and consistent to God's word. God's word says there is no one good, no, not one. In fact, in the story with Jesus and the rich young ruler, this young man comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What was Jesus doing? He was showing him that no one in human history other than God is actually good, which is why Jesus was there in the first place, because he alone lived out a life of perfect goodness before God. So if I said this, hey, everyone in here, know that your starting place is not that you're ultimately good. Know that your starting place is this. You've broken God's commands and your sin isn't against ultimately another man or woman. It's against God and you deserve hell for all eternity. It's not popular, but it's faithful to God's word. I would say there's a reason why I'm, I'm so passionate about preaching the gospel and preaching God's word. And, and sometimes like, hey, be careful with that because you don't want to like offend people with like the passion and stuff like that. It's like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to get another time to preach God's word. So I'm going to treat every time like it's my last. And to just tell someone like, hey, man, don't worry about it. But like, there's a train coming at you. It's like 100 miles per hour. and You're, you're tied up on the track and that thing's going to obliterate you, okay? Like you wouldn't tell someone that. But if you understood that where your life is headed is to face God's wrath and, and eternal separation from him, and anything that you have in life is a free gift of God's grace, every breath, every heartbeat, every sunrise, every sunset, everything is a gift. It changes your whole perspective, not go through life saying, this isn't fair, or I deserve this, or I deserve that. What you could actually say is, I don't think I deserve anything from a good and holy and righteous and perfect and moral God, other than his wrath and condemnation. I think that helps a lot because in our marriages, in our relationships, with our jobs, and with all of life, we don't go through life going, this is really difficult. I don't deserve this. I'm just a pretty good person and God should be honoring my goodness. Again, 
We're here. The Israelites, again, are being attacked. This time, they're being attacked by this king named Amalek, and we know who he is based upon the book of Genesis. It tells us that this is Jacob's brother Esau. This is his descendants. And so we have this man coming in now and attacking the Israelites, trying to overthrow them. And what they need to know first is they need to know God and God's promises. And God's promises for God's people is never smooth sailing and a really easy life. Look at this. God's promises for his people. Look at Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, will be with you wherever you go. God's promise is, I'm going to be with you. Isaiah 41.10 says the same thing. You get to the Great Commission, and, and Jesus says, Go forth into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you. Then we go through the rest of the New Testament, and we see that very faithful men to God, the apostles, had really horrific lives. You go throughout church history, and you see depression that Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and men like that suffered from. What you don't see is a life of ease. In fact, Jesus makes a promise. He says, in this world, John 16, says, you will have trials and tribulation. Fear not, I've overcome the world. You're going to suffer. You're going to have trials. That's a promise from God. The greater promise is from God in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of attacks and all that's happening with you. I will be your God and I will be with you and I have a purpose for what is happening in your life. And it's for your good, though it might not seem that way, and it's for my glory. We need to know in a battle who God is and what his promises are. That is so important. Just as a funny story to reiterate how difficult it is for us to be good. I'm going to read this as as a pastor tells it. A husband had fallen ill with some serious symptoms. His wife took him to the doctor who examined him and ran a complete battery of tests. He told the man to get dressed and step outside. After the husband was gone, the wife said, give it to me straight, doctor. What's wrong with my husband? Well, your husband is going to die unless you take some real special measures for him. Of course, doctor, I will do anything to help my husband. Just tell me what it is. This is what you must do. First of all, you must not allow him to have any stress whatsoever. You must make him three healthy meals a day. Do whatever he asks you to do. Smother him with kisses all the time and tell him how much you love him. Give him whatever he wants and needs. Spoil him rotten and wait on him hand and foot. And then, and only then, will your husband live. On the way home, the husband said to his wife, Well, honey, what did the doctor say? Am I going to get well? And without missing a beat, she said, It's terminal. (laughs) If we have a hard time looking at God's commands to even love our own spouse, and we recognize our failure in that department, how much more so when God says, hey, the summation of the law is this, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. I think we have an honest assessment to go, we're not actually as good as we think we are. We're actually fallen, broken people who need God's grace. We need his intervention. We need him to do something with our fallen state. And so if we can start there and know God's promises, we can know God's faithfulness, and we can know God's goodness But we can also know what God hasn't promised, and that's a life of smooth sailing. It's not a life around the trials. It's not a life uh, absent of suffering and pain. In fact, God's promises, I know pain too, because I walked this earth. I know suffering and I know loss. 
I'm the God who can empathize with you. And I'm the God who will remain with you. That's his promise. So when we get into a situation like the Israelites with the Amalekites, we look at that and go, God, I don't rise up against you right now and go, you should not be doing this for me because I'm a good person. You should honor that. We say, my goodness, God, I don't know why you ever saved me in the first place. I don't know why you spared my life. I don't know why you've poured out your love for me because I know what I deserve. And so I will trust you in the midst of hardship because I know that you are with me. Next, we need to know our enemy and know our enemy's schemes. What we do know about this story is we know from other biblical accounts in Deuteronomy that what actually happens here is Amalek, as this ruler and an enemy, is just like our enemy, Satan. He's smart. He's an opportunist. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 25, 17, and 18 says this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way, listen here, when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. We need to know the enemy and know the schemes of the enemy. So what Amalek did is he came up from behind where the women and children would be at and he attacked them and he attacked them after they were hungry and thirsty and weary and faint. He was a smart enemy. He waited for an opportune time. And we need to know that we have a real enemy named Satan who's an opportunist. And his schemes are the same. How does he work? Well, if you ever watch the National Geographic, you can even see what predators do is they try to separate the weak from the pack. So one of the biggest things that the enemy does is he tries to isolate people from community. Because in isolation, then he can pour on his deception. And then you have no way to even challenge and know that you're being deceptive because you've removed yourself from community. See, Christian community is not something that we just tack on and say, maybe consider this. It's actually vital for us living and growing as believers into the Christian life. The most dangerous place you can be, Christ himself, God himself, did not even live that way. Even up to the point in Gethsemane, he he called his brothers and said, please be with me. Please pray for me. There's a reason why we as Christians need to live in the context of relationships with other Christians. Why? Because we need to be saturating one another in the truth of God's word. We need to know that the enemy is an opportunist who's looking for the weak, he's looking for the weary, which is also why we need to do this. Our body is a temple, which means we need to take care of it. Paul charges Timothy in this, that yes, bodily training is of some importance. It's not as important as spiritual training, but it is still important. How we eat, how we sleep, how we take care of ourselves, those things are actually important. I remember my wife and I have been in counseling for years together, and and I armed myself for our first counseling uh, session. I was like, all right, I got this. I I, I prepped myself. Maybe you guys are like that. You're like, you're running through it. If he asked this, I I just kind of know where to go here. If he asked this, I'm going to take it this way. So I got this. The first question, this unbelievably wise almost 80-year-old man asked me, is how much sleep are you getting? That was, I was not prepped for that one. And honestly, I was like, what is the relevance to this? Like, I had a lot of good stuff that I was ready for. What's the relevance to this? He, he said this, why, why, why will I spend so much time talking about all the other stuff with you if biologically you're living off three hours of sleep at night? Don't think that the enemy doesn't see that and know that as an opportunity to also step in and attack. He goes for the weak, and he goes for the faint, and he goes for the weary. But how else is the enemy 
going to attack. Right before this, and you have to see this, we have to see this, right before this, the Israelites are grumbling with one another. They're also grumbling before God because they're grumbling against Moses. They were actually ready to stone their leader. They're like, this stinks. We're starving to death out in the wilderness. We don't have food. We don't have water. We don't have any of this. And so they start this whole division process of grumbling, of discontentment, of anger, of frustration. One of the greatest that the enemy attacks and that he can attack and that he will attack is as much as he can to try to stir up disunity and division amongst God's people, period. Look at, look at the letter to the church in Corinth. There was sexual immorality, sexual perversion. There was some sort of like incestuous relationship going on. There was a lot of stuff. What does Paul address first for the first four chapters of that letter? Unity. He could have went after everything. He goes after unity because he understands that a divided people are a very susceptible people. And what kind of witness is that to the world if Christians are supposed to be the most bonded, united people and all the world sees is grumbling and complaining and arguing and all of that? Unity is vitally important to us. If I want to go against another army, the best way that I could destroy that army is to turn that army against itself and then I can just step back and let them take care of themselves. We see this, right? Might be a cheesy example. Maybe you like Avengers, maybe you don't. But in the Avengers Civil War, that's what happens. There's this one guy, and he turns all the Avengers, these men and women that are supposed to be fighting for the good of the universe, one guy turns them all against one another, so all they do is fight with one another, and they forget where their actual battle and war is, and it's not against one another. That's a scheme of the enemy, and it's sick, but yet he uses it time and time and time again which is why this is also unpopular. But Hebrews 13 tells us this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Maybe you think you're a Christian, but the only contribution you're giving to the Christian community is a black eye. How? Imagine how unhelpful it would be for a group of Israelites to just sit off to the side and be like, look at how Joshua and Moses are doing it all wrong. All wrong. That's stupid. That sucks. Their only contribution is to just sit off to the side. Not encouraging, not fighting alongside, not with, not for, not submitting to their leaders that God has appointed, anything like that. It's just, look at them. All you have with that is slander, gossip, backbiting, and devouring, but not people that are actually engaged in a fight against the real enemy, Satan, sin, and death. So that's what the enemy will do. And those are the schemes he will use. He will also tell you stuff like, you deserve an easy life. You deserve a better life. You deserve more than this, right? Again, we need to know what God's word says. We need to be a community that is grounded in God's word. Because when the enemy comes in, what he does is deceive. That's what the enemy does. He's a deceiver. And what he's going to try to do is deceive you into believing something other than God's word says. Did you know God's word says your fight isn't against flesh and blood? It's not against humanity. It's not against Mormons. It's not against Muslims. It's not against Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not against Hindus. It's not against someone who's of different ethnicity. Your fight is against spiritual darkness in this world. What is the enemy constantly doing through the news, through politics, and through everything else? Saying that person right there is who you're at war with. Or telling you that life should be easy, right? Hey, you signed up for Christianity, life should be easy. But even if we look at the stories that Jesus tells, 
People understood that Jesus' teachings were very difficult. In fact, we see this in John. It says this in John 6, 66. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, Jesus is unpacking what it is to be a follower of him. Look at what they say. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, boy, this is a hard saying. Following Jesus is hard. And they said, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing to himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did believe and those who did not believe. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless granted him by the Father. Essentially, Jesus is saying this, and, 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 uh, that in order to follow me, life is going to be really difficult. <laughs> it's going to be hard. In fact, he says in Luke 9, 23, take up your cross every now and then, once a week, once a month, daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. What is he saying? Die every day. Die to yourself. Die to all of your wants and your comforts and your selfish desires and live to follow me. That's not easy, guys. And it only comes when supernaturally God gives us a new heart to see his love and obey his commands. But we need to know what God's promises are, what the enemy's schemes are, so we can stand against them. We need this. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, do you know what he does? Every single attack that the enemy brings against him was a lie against God's word. If you don't know what God's word says is truth, then how will you know you're being deceived by the enemy and how will you counter those lies with truth? When the enemy comes in and says, you are dirty, you are worthless, and you are awful, you need to know uh, that if you are in Christ, that is not consistent with what God says about you. In Colossians 1.21, it says that you are innocent, holy, and blameless. And so when the enemy comes up against God's word, or the enemy comes up and, and partners with my emotions even, and, and I start telling myself, well, I, I, I feel this way, I don't feel this way, we trump all of that with God's word and say, hey, my emotions might be telling me this, the enemy might be telling me this, but I know what this says, that before God, I stand wholly blameless and innocent because his word tells me so. If a community is not grounded in, anchored in, tethered in God's word, we will have a hard time recognizing the enemy's schemes as they come in deceitful form. Next, we need to know our banner. <clears throat> we need to know our banner. And, and this is important because what I, what I don't want to leave you with is being scared of the devil because we don't need to be. In fact, maybe I've shared this story before. I was at Chili's once for a bachelor and bachelorette party combined. It's a great spot. I sat next to a guy. I think I've shared this. I've sat next to a guy. This is in Reno, long time ago, like 10 years. And uh, I don't know why. He just felt like he needed to challenge me a lot. And, and, and like he kept getting closer to me, sat next to me, and I'm like, oh. And, and so, uh, and he goes, hey. I know you're like a fighter and all, but he's like, I'm not scared. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I said, hey, I said, I'm also not afraid of Lance Armstrong, but I'm never going to be able to beat him in a bike race. Why do I share that with you? Well, my flesh wants you to think I'm winsome. That's one reason. But more importantly, I need you to know that we need to be aware of the enemy 
and aware of his schemes and aware of his tactics, but we don't need to be scared of him. We just need to be aware because the enemy that is against us has already been triumphed over in Christ. Here's what I mean. Look at the text here. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. That's the first time that we see God's word commanding the oral and written tradition of God's word, which is beautiful. Look here. Keep going in 14. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. In other words, Yahweh is my banner. What this means in army language was a, a banner was a rallying point that soldiers and troops would look to and say, that's why we're fighting. If you ever seen Mel Gibson, the movie, The Patriot, is when, when they're starting to lose, he grabs the American flag and he takes it and he runs it back up the hill and all the troops start looking over the flag and they're like, yes, what's happening here is the banner for the Christian life is the thing that drives us, motivates us, and reminds us that the fight has been won and it belongs to Yahweh. Here's what I mean. I think it's the army that has this slang, uh, are saying that it's an army of one. The truth is, is the Christian message is an army of one. In fact, it's one man who could look at God's word and God's law and say, yes, I have lived a life of complete honor. I have honored God through my actions. I have honored God through my life. I have honored God through my words. I have perfectly obeyed God. There is one person who's walked this earth named Jesus Christ who can say declaratively, I am good. In fact, I'm perfect. I am honorable and I've honored my father, yet he's the only human in all of human history who died a death he did not deserve, a dishonorable death on a cross. Why? You have to hear this. In this story, you have a man named Moses going up on a hill with a wooden staff, having his hands elevated by his friends. At the pinnacle of the redemption story, you have a man, the greater Moses, going up on a hill called Calvary. Not this time having his hand lifted by two men, but having it driven in by two nails. This was an odd way to win a battle. Why is the author showing this? Because the oddest way to win a battle is through a cross on a hill called Calvary but that's how Christ won. By himself, he fought alone in our place. What was he doing? All the wrath and punishment that our sins deserve from God in order for God to maintain his justice were poured out. There's no reservoir of God's wrath left. God poured out all of his wrath on Christ. Christ drank it and absorbed all of it down. And then he said these three words, the Christian banner, mark this, it is finished. It is complete, it is accomplished, it is done all that needed to be done in order for you to be reconciled to God and be made right and perfect and holy and blameless in his sight, I have finished it. I have done it. I have completed it. I have accomplished. The banner that reads out over every Christian's life who's placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ is it is finished. It's it. It's done. Christianity is not a message of do and do and try hard. It's a message of done. Now believe it. If someone's walking in rebellion, it's because they've probably never understood the true message of the gospel, which is the good news. It's done. It's finished. Christ did it. And then he went into the grave, took all of our sins there, buried them there with himself, and then rose victorious to say, the victory that is mine now belongs to you as well. There's a story 
and I've also shared this, but it's too good not to tell, of a Japanese warrior named Haru, I'm going to butcher his last name. I believe it's Onida. There we go. Haru Onida was his name. And he went into battle in 1944 at the tail end of the war. And he was sent to an island to go and gather intelligence and go to war for Japan. He was told to never surrender and never give up. In fact, his mom gave him a dagger that if he was caught so he would not be disarmed, he could kill himself. Well, the war ended shortly after he was there on an island with his troops, but he never got the memo. And so he kept fighting and he kept going to war with these people. And in fact, Japan even sent over, this is a true story, they dropped in leaflets, messages for him because he was an underground hiding that said, Haru, the war is over, you can come home. And he thought it was a big ploy from the enemy to say, "Uh uh-uh. And people tried to contact him, but his people would get killed and that only affirmed that the war must still be going on, so he fought this way. He left at 22 and he fought this war for 30 years until the age of 52 on this island. The war had been over for 30 years. Finally, a student came in and said, I think this man is still alive because they pronounced him dead and he found him. And he went back and found his commanding officer and his commanding officer came to the island and called out Haru and said, the war is over. And for the first time in 30 years, his family got to see him at 52 years old. That whole time he believed that the war was still going. And many Christians today don't realize that the war, the ultimate war has been fought and it's done and it's finished by Christ. And the reason we're exhausted and that we're burnt out and that we're tired is because somehow we still believe that Christ's war on the cross was not sufficient. And what actually provides the rest that we need to take care of our bodies is not Netflix and everything else. It's looking to Christ's work as our banner that it is finished and saying, I'm gonna put all my trust and faith in that. That's where my hope is. In fact, if you want to glorify God, cast all of your weight, all of your trust, and all of your confidence into the work that his son accomplished for you, we see in the Old Testament that the people that dishonored God didn't trust in his saving power. Trust that Christ's work is finished and it's sufficient. Think about the, I mean, complete arrogance that it would take for us to know that God sent his son to go through such a brutal death and we're down here doing stuff. And what are we doing? And we tell God, I'm just trying to, to, to make myself into a child. I'm just trying to make myself pleasing to you. I'm trying to make myself holy. God's response is my son has done that. The arrogance to think that we can somehow warrant through our actions. God's love is ridiculous. Christ's work is finished. That's our banner, and that's the banner for the Christian life. If we want to know what's going to make a strong community, it's this. Collectively, what we do is we point our brothers and sisters in Christ to the banner to say, hey, look, your eyes have drifted over here. You're not believing the truth of what Christ has done. Look to the banner. It is finished. Look over here. And it's a group of people that love one another deeply enough to say, you're not believing the truth of what Christ has done. And they're steering and pointing one another constantly back to the truth of the gospel, which is the good news. If you have a struggle with what it says here that the Amalekites are going to be blotted out under heaven for all eternity, forever, as it says in verse 14, know this, that we deserve to be blotted out of God's presence for all eternity, for all eternity. But Isaiah says this, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins forevermore. 
I don't struggle to see God's justice displayed on his children as people were trying to kill his children. What I struggle in my mind is blown away with, and my heart, is why would God choose to take all of my sins, cast them upon his son, and then say, I'm not going to remember them anymore. As I look at my life, as I look at my history, as I look at what I've done and failed to do, all I can say is, my goodness, our God is a God of amazing grace. Look to him. Know our banner. Know what he's done. Know what he's accomplished. Jesus is the greater Joshua, the ultimate warrior. He's the greater Moses, the ultimate prophet. And now we need to know where our battle is right now. Right now. So if I just told you, well, the war's done, I would say, yes, the war's done. And God had already redeemed his people. But there's still this annoying a nuisance when we live on this side of this world. I'm, I'm, I'm going to promise you this because God promises it, and I'll stand on that, that one day all enemies, all sickness, all deceit will all be gone, and those in Christ will dwell with him right here on this earth for all eternity. That's God's promise. But there's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. There's going to be annoyances. There's going to be deceit from the enemy. We see that here. God's redeemed his people, but they still have this. So we need to know where our battle is now. Again, we need to know we're in a battle. When I was quartering last night at the fights, I was so ticked, ticked. New word, hasn't made it out on the streets yet. I was angry, okay? So angry. One of my fighters after the second round said that he's done. And I was like, what do you mean you're done? He's like, I'm done. They used the word retire. I was like, retire? I don't know. Okay. He quit. And I, and I, I said, hey, I was like, you're in a fight. That means it's time to fight. And he's like, mm -mm. I'm like, then what did you sign up for? You know, I don't care if he listens to this because I made all of this very clear afterwards. So if we know that we have an enemy that we're at war with, if we know that we're in a fight, then we shouldn't be surprised whenever the enemy attacks us, whenever the enemy is trying to divide us, whenever the enemy is trying to deceive us, whenever the enemy is oppressing us. When we face hardships in life, we should know that we aren't on the team of the world. We are on the team of the king. And the world opposes him. So when we face opposition in this life, we should go, that's probably a good thing because it says, I'm not of the world. I'm on the king's side. So know where our battle is now. And our battle, I, I, I'm going to say this over and over again, it's not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the enemy. In fact, our battle is this. The greatest enemy is sin because only sin can separate us from God. Satan uses sin to try to deceive us. But now that's been disarmed because Christ goes, I dealt with that whole sin problem, blotted it out, took care of it. So now all the enemy can do is come and say, oh, you're dirty, you're gross. And, and, and the words of Christ are always, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. So we need to know our battle right now is not against flesh and blood. We also need to know that we battle for faith every day in our lives. It is called, John, I love John Piper. He goes, the biggest problem, or one of the biggest problems in the war today, and I'm going to do it like John Piper does. He goes, is people forget, then we're at war! And that's how he does it. I'm like, whoa, okay. And he goes, that's the problem. No one wakes up remembering that we're at war. Yet it says to fight the good fight of faith. The hardest thing for us to do and for us to remember is that every day there's a battle. And it's that we have a hard time believing and trusting and resting in Christ. And we do that collectively. We're at war. It's not against one another. It's against the enemy. But here's the other thing. And I would say in the Bible, this comes from the Bible, we are at war with our flesh, our sinful desires. We do not 
live into holiness. We live out of the holiness that God gave us. We are daily as Christians supposed to be putting our sin to death. The most consistent way that we live out of our holiness is to live holy lives. This means that just because God steps in and saves us by his grace through faith in the finished work of Christ doesn't mean we go, cool, it's all good. We go, my goodness, why would God do that? Now, since he has made me pure, now since he has made me holy, I'm going to live out of that. Which means that in a lot of ways, my greatest battles with the man inside of here and your greatest battles with the man or woman inside of here. And one of the ways you can put to death your own sin is through loving and serving other people. Think about that. When you serve your local church family, when you pray for people, when you step into their lives, what you're doing is saying no to yourself and you're saying yes to love and serve someone else. That should be a consistent habit of people, the people of God. Denying yourself is a good practice. The more you can say no to yourself, the more you can say yes to who you are in Christ and living out of that, which is why one of the best ways that we can know how to battle is these two things, confess our sin and battle against your self-image, because all we want to do is protect our self-image so we look good to others. One of the ways we can battle against that is to confess our sins and lay it out there. And also, we can battle by picking the right teammates to battle with. I was thinking about this, but I was like, I've never thought of it this way but if you looked at a coffee shop and there were three women sitting together, would you ever look at them and think, boy, she's got the helmet of salvation on. They got the sword of the spirit. Reminding one another this, it's like, they got battle equipment on. Like three women in a coffee shop with the word open, reminding one another of their battle cry and of their banner and all that is watching three women go to war for one another, reminding one another who you are in Christ and to live out of that. It's a beautiful thing. The keys to the universe here. But what we need is we need faithful men and women to battle alongside of. Not flashy, faithful. Let me challenge you with this, church family. Be faithful. Be faithful to love. Be faithful to serve. Be faithful to put your own sin to death so you can live with a life filled with joy out of the new nature, new creation that God has made you in his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have something greater than what the world does that unites us. It's not even a battle plan or a tactic. It's your son. Let us rejoice that Jesus, the battle is won. It is done. It is finished. But because it's finished, let that produce a sense of joy as we live in faithful obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.